Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... Mostly it's the other way around, that people do end up getting punished even if they do have a mental illness, or else they just never make it to the stage where they would be judged by a court and they are subject to public justice instead. Dr. Ramesa Kaza Khan discusses crime and punishment, Pakistan's legal failure to account for mental illness. Hi, my name is Sachin. I am a general adult psychiatrist based in London. Hi, I'm Hamilton, and I'm a junior doctor who will be starting psych training in London in August. Today, we are talking about the article Crime and Punishment, Pakistan's Legal Failure to Account for Mental Illness. Hammy, can you tell me about this article? Well... This is an article by Dr. Rameza Kazakhan and Dr. Abdul Maurice Khan. And the article broadly covers how Pakistani legislation affects mental health patients and how they're affected generally within the country's legal system. Yeah, and we'll see how the country's legislation on suicide has affected how patients engage with clinical services particularly around suicide attempts, how the country's view of mental illness has affected defendants who may have mental illnesses within legal cases, and how the country's blasphemy laws have affected people with mental illness. So Sachin, you've looked into the country's blasphemy laws a little bit, haven't you? Yeah, as we'll hear in the interview coming up, obviously it is a sensitive subject as it deals with religion. Obviously I'm not the right person to talk about it, but I have looked at a Amnesty International report on the impact of blasphemy laws in Pakistan. The report is titled As Good As Dead. The impact of blasphemy laws in Pakistan, and it's dated 2016. It says that research gathered for the report has shown that individuals with mental disabilities are at particular risk of being accused of blasphemy. They mention one particular example a 14 year old Christian girl with a learning disability who was arrested and charged with blasphemy in 2012 following allegations by a cleric, and I'm quoting here, that she had burned pages of the Quran, and the High Court had accepted the petition and quashed the case against her for lack of evidence. The judgment noted that she had been falsely implicated in the case, and that if her case had proceeded with a trial, her prosecution would allow the courts to be used as a tool for an ulterior motive. So... Amnesty International's report gets a bit more accusatory, I guess, of how such blasphemy laws can be used to target people with mental illnesses. But I guess it is useful to have this activist view of things. I mean, it's scary stuff, isn't it? It sounds like witchcraft accusations, like the Salem witch trials, it would open a window, a door, where individuals that are deemed as perhaps socially undesirable behavior of theirs can be heavily punished for being seen as being blasphemous or going against religious teaching. Right. Amnesty International have a section within the report called Accusations of Blasphemy Against People with Mental Disabilities. 
where they note that the blasphemy laws, first of all, do not meet international standards and existing safeguards are weak and poorly enforced. And as such, those with mental disabilities are especially vulnerable to violations of this law or potential abuses of it by third parties. The report states that the Pakistan Penal Code exempts from criminal prosecution those who, by reason of unsoundness of mind, is incapable of knowing the nature of the act, which, you know, sounds like an insanity defense, right? However, the burden to prove unsoundness of mind is on the accused, the difficulty of which is compounded within a context of general stigma and lack of awareness relating to people with mental illnesses in Pakistan. And of course, there must be socioeconomic aspect of if you have to, say, hire a medical professional to formally make a statement that an individual has a form of neurodisability or form of mental illness, which means that they do not understand the nature of the acts. I mean, it's incredibly unfair that the burden of proof is on the accused. Absolutely. You better be able to afford a good lawyer, as they say. Mm. A mental expert who has assessed several prisoners accused of blasphemy in Sindh told Amnesty International that in order to assess the mental competence of individuals accused of blasphemy, quote, there must be a robust psychiatric assessment of every blasphemy defendant to ensure that individuals with mental illness are not being prosecuted for behaviours over which they have no control and for which they cannot be held responsible. Such defendants need treatment and not punishment in any fair and humane social system. I mean... That's not limited to blasphemy and that's not limited to Pakistan. I mean, this is the separation of treating people as criminals and treating people as patients, basically. Closer to home, we see it with regards to people with drug misuse. And do you treat that as criminal or do you treat that as clinical, right? Mm. Lawyers can request the court to provide a mental health assessment for their client and to refer him or her to a government-appointed medical board. A member of the medical board at the PIMH, which is the Punjab Institutes of Mental Health, told Amnesty International, we get 10 to 12 blasphemy cases referred by a court per year. We find that a majority of people referred to us are mentally ill. Many suffer from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. However, one lawyer tells Amnesty International that even where there is evidence that someone suffers from mental illness, some doctors are unwilling to put themselves at risk by confirming that evidence. These considerations can go unnoticed or even ignored by the courts, as illustrated by some cases that they provide. So it starts to become somewhat Kafka-esque. Like, the whole system seems to be against you in that even... In a case where it's evident that you have mental illness, doctors might not be willing to go to bat for you. It's terrifying. I guess one wouldn't want to be ostracized within society. And there may be this fear. In the same way, it can be seen as controversial to defend individuals in a court of law in quite sensitive crimes. Perhaps a medical professional testifying in any such way that would make apparent that the individual had no understanding of the nature of the act and therefore in the eyes of the court should not be punished it stands to reason that many individuals wouldn't want to i guess stick their neck out so to speak 
Right. And I don't think this is on the doctors or anything like that. You know, you got to think about as a doctor, how would you act in this sort of situation? And here I'll just read from a section called Fear of Possible Defense Witnesses to Come Forward in the report, which says, One of the major difficulties for lawyers representing someone accused of blasphemy is to secure defense witnesses willing to give evidence. Talking to Amnesty International about his client facing blasphemy charges, one lawyer stated that a key witness had refused to give evidence due to security concerns. The lawyer said, defense witnesses who know the truth are often too scared to come forward. Another lawyer, representing clients facing blasphemy charges, talked about similar difficulties where there is evidence of the accused having a mental illness. The lawyer said, and here's the telling part, the risks associated with blasphemy cases are so great that it is extremely difficult to persuade anyone to give testimony in defense of someone accused of blasphemy. Even where there is clear and incontrovertible evidence that someone suffers from mental illness, some doctors are, understandably, unwilling to put their own necks on the line. This has catastrophic effects on the fairness of trials, since even where there are valid defences, it becomes very difficult to prove these. Mm. The lawyer is saying this is understandable on the part of the doctor. Well, it just reminds me of the quote by John Stuart Mill, which is often misattributed to Edmund Burke, which is that bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. Basically, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. But would swap maybe evil, <laughs> yeah. the word with injustice, let's say. Yeah, well, it's certainly unjust. It's certainly unjust. Sachin, is it not the case that it was only as recently as 1961 that suicide was decriminalised in the United Kingdom? And up until that point, it was something that would be prosecuted. Right. So we've got to look at what's going on with Pakistan's legislation in context of it's not so different to what we've had. And by the way, that's not by accident. <laughs> A lot of Pakistani law has roots in British colonialism, right? Mm. And that's not just the suicide law, but you know, as we've been discussing, Pakistan's blasphemy laws have roots in British colonialism. So that's exactly right, Sachin. I've actually found a very useful article on the Al Jazeera website, which mentions that Pakistan actually inherited its blasphemy laws from its former British colonial occupiers, who in 1860 introduced a set of laws related to religion in order to quell Hindu-Muslim violence in the Indian subcontinent. Whenever there's something going on in the world, you can trace it back to us, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's like that meme of... Britain in British history books and it shows a golden retriever and then Britain in every other country's history textbooks and it shows a large a savage werewolf. Hmm. So we know that Pakistan's blasphemy laws were inherited from similar British laws and so it wouldn't surprise me if that was similarly the case for Pakistan's suicide laws as well. Well, you would be right in that assumption, Hami. Because as we will see 
in the interview and in the article, obviously Pakistan's stance on suicide has changed and that it was decriminalized. And this article in the Express Tribune, Pakistan, notes that it is a colonial penal law that was abolished. But while you were looking that up, I did find a... Better source. <laughs> well, I, I found a literature review titled Suicide and its Legal Implications in Pakistan. And this review is from 2017. And it does mention, of course, one of the major religions in Pakistan is Islam. And there are verses in the Quran that are seen to specifically condemn violent acts, including suicide and state. You should not kill yourself because God has been merciful to you. And this is a literature review by Naveed et al, published in Curious in 2017. Well, yeah, the colonial law has evidently persisted up until 2018 and obviously been symbiotic with Pakistan's religious views. So yeah, we should acknowledge that these laws often <laughs> have roots in British colonialism and the British spreading their attitudes forcibly around the world. But though these laws have roots in a British colonialism, they've persisted and even been modified and strengthened to modern era. And they do not necessarily contradict the prevailing cultural attitude in Pakistan mm. in that suicide is not permitted within Islam, for example. Mm. And, you know, we will hear that in the interview coming up that obviously there's a lot of stigma attached to suicide because of the religious views on suicide. So, shall we find out more from Dr. Ramisa Kazakhan, the lead author of the paper? Yeah, let's check it out. My name is Dr. Ramisa Kazakhan. I recently completed my Foundation Year 1 training in Pakistan, and I currently teach behavioral sciences to medical and allied health students. What generally interests me in psychiatry is since undergraduate level, I've worked a lot with my university's student counseling program and the psychiatry department. Since it's a very underserved area in Pakistan and not a lot of people talk about mental health, there is a lot of stigma around it. So what particularly interested me in these issues is just the need. I felt that more people need to talk about it and to be aware of what's going on in our society with regards to mental health. Now, with regards to people not talking about mental health, you do mention that the World Health Organization has targets that they've set with regards to mental health policy and governance. But as far as tracking it, they have found that there's not much reporting coming out of Pakistan. And it's worth noting some of these things. So in a report from the World Health Organization, they found that there's no reporting from Pakistan on the total expenditure on mental health. There's no reporting on the number of mental health workers, including psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, or social workers. No reporting on the number of inpatients or involuntary admissions, or on the degree of use of outpatient care. And no prevalence reporting on mental illness why is there so little reporting coming out of Pakistan on these issues? The reason for such little reporting coming out of Pakistan is, first of all, that 
there aren't services available. They would report statistics if people actually had access to some of the services that you've mentioned, like special care for adolescents and children and special care for adults, specialized care for prisoners, or just mental health facilities or therapy programs that are easily accessible to people in general. To get an idea of why all of this happens, you have to kind of understand that in Pakistan, mental health is somewhat of a taboo topic as it is in most Asian societies. There are a lot of reasons for that, partially because people don't take it seriously. They don't really believe in mental health issues. Even with a lot of doctors or psychiatrists, you'd get that approach that mental health isn't something that needs to be taken very seriously. There are a lot of confounders as well. People tend to mix their religious and social beliefs into the equation, and that just results in a very mixed and non-standardized approach to mental health problems overall in society. So when that happens, you don't have standardized care or facilities available to patients. And since patients don't have those facilities, then you don't have the statistics about how many people are accessing these services. It's just simply put, not a priority for either the healthcare workers or the infrastructure or the politicians who are making these policies. So it's a multi-level failure on part of pretty much everyone who's involved in policymaking in this regard. So the reason we're not achieving those mental health aims set out by WHO is because we just don't have the system in place that's needed to achieve those goals. What is the state of mental health care in Pakistan? Well, currently, according to the statistics that I was able to find from some of the work that has previously been done, there are about 500 psychiatrists that are serving a population of 200 million people currently. So those odds don't look very good, but at least it's a start. And otherwise, other than that, we do have a National Mental Health Act which was legislation passed in 2001. It's mostly retained most of the features and laws from the Lunacy Act of 1912, which is set by the British government before partition times and before Pakistan became an independent country. So what the Mental Health Act retained from the original Lunacy Act is just basically rights of prisoners and basic human rights, like a right to property, right to confidentiality, right to medical treatment, things like that. There hasn't been a lot of progress since then, And for some of the provinces, we have four provinces. For two of them, no such act even exists. The provincial assemblies haven't passed those acts. So there is like a semblance of a framework for legislation, but not a lot of practical implementation has been done. As far as a few years ago, even then, suicide was a criminal offense. That has changed in 2018. The legislation has come into play that Suicide is no longer a criminal offense, but even so, there are no enforcing authorities or institutions that are actually monitoring the situation. So it's very hard to say what the actual statistics and what the actual plans and policies in place at different institutions look like. So you mentioned the Mental Health Ordinance 2001 legislation. What did it add to the Lunacy Act that was previously in place? What it was supposed to do was to establish a uniform national authority that would be comprised of psychiatrists and psychologists. And this authority was basically supposed to oversee training and review, if you will, and to make sure that all the existing facilities that we do have for psychiatric patients, such as any hospitals or clinics, were up to the standard and all psychiatrists and psychologists were practicing according to the rules set out by this authority. In addition, they were supposed to formulate new policies 
for spreading public awareness and for determining a national standard of care or basically coming up with a set of guidelines that would be followed in psychiatric settings. So while these were the proposed aims, again, practical implementation has not been done. So none of these things actually exist so far. Most of the things that we do have are just basic rights that would generally be observed anyways for patients regardless whether they were psychiatric patients or not. So basically there is no system for prisoners or people with special needs despite the act setting up a premise for the body needed to do that. And you mentioned that Pakistan is divided into provinces. This ordinance, I assume, is a national ordinance, but then do provinces have their own policies? Yes, there's a national policies and then provinces get their own budgets to implement those policies or to make any amendments or modifications. So, for example, if you have a national law, provinces do have some sort of leeway in setting their own policies and they have their own healthcare budgets and they have their own policy committees. So within a national framework, they have autonomy to decide how their budgets are allocated. So while you have national expenditure, for example, I mentioned that the national expenditure on health is like 0.04%. So part of that budget goes to four provinces. It's divided amongst them and each province then further decides how to spend that money. So for provinces that the Mental Health Act doesn't even exist in, like Balochistan or Azad Jammu and Kashmir, obviously if it doesn't even exist there, the funds aren't going to be diverted towards it. And that means that in those provinces, people with mental health disorders or people with psychiatric conditions are just not getting the care that they need. And they need to go to other provinces or other cities to get treated for mental health illnesses. The other thing I want to get some idea of is just how healthcare works in Pakistan in general. Is it publicly funded or is it insurance funded? Pakistan has basically a system like the NHS, except it's a lot less regulated. There are government hospitals, which are in every district and every city and every province. So government hospitals are free and they're usually the largest hospitals in those areas. So anyone can access these hospitals and they are very, very cheap, you would say. I mean, it's only a cursory fee for most of the consultations. So more or less majority of the population goes to government hospitals to get free healthcare. Other than that, private healthcare is available, but it's very costly. So not a lot of people can access those services. There is no system of health insurance per se. It's just public health care that gets funding from the government and people don't have to pay anything. It's just based on taxes. So more or less about, I would say, 80 to 90 percent of the population gets their care from government hospitals. And then as far as accessibility goes, first of all, you mentioned that there's an estimate of maybe 500 psychiatrists working in Pakistan to a population of 200 million in terms of distribution, would that mainly be in city urban areas? And what's the provision like in more rural areas? I think there is a lot of disparity in that. Like you mentioned, most of these hospitals are, especially the larger ones that would have facilities like psychiatric facilities, are just present in urban areas. These facilities aren't available in rural areas or areas that are hard to access. And even then, most of these facilities are concentrated in a couple of provinces. For example, I mentioned that we had four provinces. So one of the four, that is Punjab, is the most densely populated and it tends to get the lion's share of the healthcare budget and healthcare facilities. So for people in Punjab, 
it's easier to get healthcare than it is for people in Balochistan. So if someone in Balochistan, for example, needed a treatment for a psychiatric illness, they would have to come to Punjab and they would have to come to the government hospital in question that has a psychiatric facility. And then they'd have to be part of a waiting line or a list that would ensure that they get seen. It's overall a very long and taxing process for somebody who doesn't even belong to the area. So they have to seek out help. And this discourages most people with psychiatric illnesses or mental illnesses to get help in the first place. Because even other than the fact that there aren't a lot of psychiatrists available, it's just very hard to access the facilities where these psychiatrists are in fact available. The specific focus of your paper is with regards to how this implementation of mental health policy and general societal view of mental illness then plays into the criminal justice system and the civil legal system. How is mental health managed within the civil and criminal justice system? It's not managed at all per se. I would say even the cases that I did cite It's very common practice to claim insanity as a defense, as I'm sure you're familiar. It's the same situation the world over. There are obviously incidents where people falsely claim to have mental illnesses to get their sentences reduced. But even here, it's harder to make the distinction between who is mentally ill and who is not. Because there isn't such a good awareness about mental health. So even people who are working in the criminal or civil justice system don't have an idea of what these illnesses look like and which patients are actually patients and not just faking it to get their sentences reduced. The judges don't have a good idea. The lawyers don't have a good idea. Sometimes even the doctors treating these patients in the first line who are not psychiatrists or psychologists don't have a good idea of what these patients could be suffering from. So a lack of public awareness really plays into it and it contributes a lot to not understanding which prisoners should get some sort of leeway or should have their sentences reduced because they're just not capable of understanding that they've committed a crime. So a lot of people suffer from sentences that are harsher than they would deserve. And a lot of people get sentenced wrongly simply because there's no alternative or there's no one to point out that these cases are wrong. Even in the cases that I've cited, it often takes a lot of I would say, appeals and challenges on part of the doctors to prove that the patient does have a mental illness. And even then, in some cases, like the case of Imdad Ali that I've cited in the paper, he had schizophrenia and the court said that schizophrenia is not a real mental illness. Despite evidence to the contrary, despite medical proof to the contrary, and despite a wealth of literature citing that schizophrenia is indeed a disease that hampers the defendant's judgment, the judge was unwilling to accept that. And until recently, as far as I know, even now, Imdad Ali is still on death row because the court refuses to accept schizophrenia as a valid mental illness. One case you mentioned, to quote, it says, the absence of permanent infirmity in hypomania led to the dismissal of the accused plea on grounds of insanity to postpone his trial for intentional homicide. So... Presumably in this case, they understood that there was hypomania, but they made the decision based on there is no permanent infirmity. Who ultimately makes these calls? Who decides these things? 
the ultimate decision rests with the judge in this particular case. They do hear testimony and they do get expert opinions from psychiatrists and psychologists, especially forensic psychiatrists. The thing is, there are not a lot of psychiatrists who are qualified as forensic psychiatrists. So it's just general psychiatrists who are serving in these capacities. And they get called to court and they testify and they give their expert opinion. But ultimately, it's the judge's call to decide whether or not the accused is guilty and whether or not the accused has a mental illness. Because we don't have a jury system. We only have a judge in a courtroom that determines what happens next. So the whole power or this whole decision-making capacity rests with him. So it's up to that particular judge's belief or personal convictions how he perceives mental illness and whether or not he thinks it's a valid reason to excuse someone from taking capability for their crimes. Now, the other area in which the legal system plays a part is, and you already mentioned this with regards to suicide, and you already mentioned that the situation has changed. How did Pakistan's legal system treat suicide and what is the effect of it with regards to disclosure rates? So to give you insight on this, I would walk you through the process of what usually happens when somebody attempts to commit suicide. Let's take, for example, a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old who has taken some pills in an attempted suicide. So they're brought to the hospital. The first thing they have to do before they get treated, the attendance of the patient, that is, they have to go to the medical legal clinic, which is a small room attached to the emergency department. And they have to register a police case for attempted suicide because it's a criminal offense. At least it used to be a criminal offense. So they had to get that police report. And once they had that report, then they would get treated. So they had to disclose attempted suicide. And because a lot of people were aware that it was a criminal offense and because it goes against religious beliefs and they were afraid of getting judged, they would often just not tell emergency doctors what happened. They would just give a vague history that this patient just had some reaction to medication, for example, or she suddenly felt sick, they wouldn't disclose the actual cause of the patient's condition. That obviously led to hampering of the treatment as well. But this was standard procedure. You just could not avoid filing a police report. It was mandatory. So people just tended to avoid that by changing the cause or changing the patient's history. So disclosure rates were very, very poor. It's very rare that anyone would come to the emergency department with a critical patient and tell you that this patient has attempted suicide. Because of the legal punishment involved and because of the taboo and the social stigma associated with it, patients just did not disclose the fact that somebody had attempted suicide. So that really skewed our statistics, I would say, because we didn't have an accurate picture of how many people are going through something like this or how many patients that we're seeing in the emergency department are actually cases of attempted suicide. So since it has been decriminalized since 2018, I think that they don't have to file a police report anymore, but the stigma is still very much there and the public isn't even aware of this amendment for the most part. So in essence, I don't think a lot has changed in how patients report to the hospital or how they under-report cases of attempted suicide. Before it had changed, so it's only changed as recently, you say, as February 2018. I understand that it was treated as a criminal offence and punishable by incarceration up to one year or a fine or both. Was it actually prosecuted? It wasn't prosecuted because our criminal justice system is very 
overwhelmed with cases so such cases don't really get a lot of attention from the courts presumably you could file a police report and somebody could report you for it that would usually be the medical aid clinic that i mentioned they it was their duty to forward it to the police and the police would decide whether they wanted to pursue this case or not so most of the times the police wasn't really interested in filing a report or taking this case forward whether it's due to compassion or whether it's due to other cases having higher priority i definitely cannot say but it wasn't something that was actively enforced and i don't think i've ever heard of a case where somebody got punished or jailed for attempting suicide but just the fact that the law was there and just the fact that the stigma was there really hampered a lot of people from coming forward with it like i said it's extremely rare for anyone to disclose that they had attempted suicide patients would usually just deny it and they would not own up to it so it really made a difference in prosecuting those cases as well another area in which mental health interplays with the legal system is with pakistan's penal code with regards to blasphemy laws one of the papers to which you cite lists some of these laws that are most typically used which includes injuring or defiling a place of worship with intent to insult the religion of any class a deliberate and malicious act intended to outrage religious feelings of any class by insulting its religion or religious beliefs defiling the holy quran and use of derogatory remarks etc in respect to the holy prophet now these are all cases in which as you point out someone who is lacking the capacity to make such decisions might do it without criminal intent or what's regarded criminal in pakistan so how does pakistan treat people who violate blasphemy laws who may have mental illness so i think the first thing to take into account here is that it's a very very sensitive topic when we talk about blasphemy laws you or any healthcare worker any lawyer any police officer would have to be very very careful because not only do these things get reported and spread to the public very quickly but since they evoke such strong emotional responses it often becomes a matter of safety for everyone involved so what happens is when such a case is reported it's immediately in the news it's all over the papers there aren't a lot of questions asked about who the patient is or whether or not they have an illness the first response is a very emotional one and since it's a matter of public sentiments i think not a lot of people are willing to get involved or willing to put themselves on the line to defend someone else in most of these cases even before the police can get involved public sentiment tends to take care of these matters or they tend to take the law into their own hands if these cases do get to the prosecution stage there aren't a lot of judges or a lot of lawyers who would stand in opposition to prosecuting such patients or such criminals so what happens is if the lawyers do file a petition or a motion saying that the patient had a mental illness the case does get reexamined but it's very rare that the verdict would be overturned i've cited examples of him badali in whose case the verdict was not overturned despite him having schizophrenia but in the case of shahbaz masi that i've also cited in the paper the courts did overturn his punishment on account of his mental illness 
So like I said, it just varies from court to court and you can file an appeal and get the verdict challenged. But that is only if you have a strong security system in place for the defendant and you are willing to take that risk to your own personal safety to pursue such a case. So this is such a sensitive matter. I think a lot of times there isn't concrete proof and there isn't a solid evidence that this person has actually done what they've been accused of doing. And this law is misused quite often, especially there have been incidents that I have cited in the references, but not mentioned in the main article. There has been an incident where somebody with Down syndrome was accused of blasphemy just so the accuser could take over their property or there was something like that that was involved. It was basically state related and had nothing to do with religion. But I think that incident is very illustrative of how these laws are so sensitive and mental illness does definitely play a big role in a lot of these cases because nobody who is sane and actually aware of their environment would, I think, take personal risks to their safety just to express these sentiments. So while mental illness does play a big part in these cases, I don't think that a mental illness defense works out a lot of the time. In very rare cases, it does excuse the defendant and it does get their punishment lessened. But such victories are very few and far in between. And mostly it's the other way around that people do end up getting punished even if they do have a mental illness or else they just never make it to the stage where they would be judged by a court and they are subject to public justice instead. You make some recommendations in your conclusion about how the situation ought to be improved and you split it between what should happen within the legal system, what should happen within the mental health care system, and what should happen broadly within society. What are the recommendations you're making? I think the first place to start would be to have some sort of body or some sort of panel that can at least take on these cases and judge them on their own merit, devoid of taking into account the public sentiment or your personal beliefs. For that to happen, we need a standardized body at a national level that will set forth some guidelines on how to deal with such patients. We do have legislation, but it's not practical and it doesn't really bring anything new to the table. As you can see, the Mental Health Act was last passed in 2001 and it's now 2020. So in 19 or 20 years, the situation has definitely changed a lot and it's not being taken into account. So what we need is a body that will periodically monitor these guidelines ensure that we are spreading public awareness, ensure that there are actual proper facilities, at least in the government hospitals that are accessible to patients with mental illness. They need to increase the number of personnel that are available for psychiatric or psychological services. They also, the government itself, and I think we as individuals as well, have a big role to play in increasing public awareness of mental health. So at least the stigma gets lessened or reduced and people will not be afraid to get help. Like the decriminalization of suicide has had a minor impact on at least people not needing to be afraid of being punished if they attempt suicide. So things like that, I think we need to highlight the fact that people who are suffering from mental illnesses will get the help that they need. And there's a system in place to help safeguard their interests as opposed to a system where they're just not noticed or they're just getting scared that is not specialized for their personal case other than that i think we just need a lot of education a lot of training 
and a lot of sensitivity training for people who deal with such cases, especially doctors, policemen, and lawyers. They can't help people if they're not aware of the problem. So like even in the cases that I've mentioned with lawyers and judges, etc., they need to go through sensitivity training to recognize at least some of the signs that a person might not be a normal person and they might need some help. And eventually it all just boils down to public sentiment and public awareness. Unless we can educate the public and change their perception of what mental illnesses look like, and what can happen if you have a mental illness, we will never get to the point where people in positions of power, such as judges, lawyers, etc., would make decisions that are beneficial to patients who need it most. I think people with mental illnesses are already a very vulnerable set of the population, and I don't think it's right that they are not getting the care that they need. So it's imperative on all of us to make sure that we have a society where we look after the most vulnerable set of people that we have and we try to help them instead of stigmatizing them, labeling them and making sure that they do have access to all of the services and facilities that they need to live a normal life as much as possible. Well, thank you for that. It's a very interesting and very important topic. I would just again like to stress the fact that psychiatry as a field is very underserved in our country in particular, and even when it comes to research, it was very hard to find the relevant statistics and data and references because not a lot of work is being done on the things that we need to talk most about. So hopefully people would take more of an interest in researching these issues and highlighting them because once we know the problem, then we can address it and then we can put our heads together and come up with something that actually works. So I think studying the problem is the root of that. And I would genuinely hope that anyone who is interested in psychiatry and is from a country like Pakistan, where it's a very underrepresented field, they would try to make their issues known and they would try to work on them. So eventually we could all live a better life in a better society. On that note, someone training in Pakistan in medicine, how much exposure to psychiatry would they get? And then in terms of career progression, what are the opportunities for becoming a psychiatrist? Well, the interesting thing is that psychiatry is not a mandatory subject at any point in our medical education. Usually what would happen is we would have a clinical rotation in psychiatry for at least a month, which is three weeks. And again, most of these are optional and people don't really go to those. So the average doctor in Pakistan or the average medical student has very limited exposure to psychiatric patients. And the first time they would see a psychiatric patient is probably when they encounter a patient for another diagnosis or another disease and then they realize, oh, there's an additional problem. So they would not know how to pick out a psychiatric patient. The only people who have any knowledge of or awareness of mental illness, even amongst doctors, are people who either have a disease themselves or else they know somebody who has a disease. So even throughout their medical school training, throughout their internship years, majority of the doctors don't really interact with psychiatric patients and they don't even identify or recognize mental illness. If they see it, they usually have to refer patients for other causes to a psychiatrist and then the psychiatrist can identify that, oh, this patient does have this problem. So the average prevalence of things like depression, anxiety, and other disorders, I guess, is very, very high here. They're just underreported and understudied, so I can't say with certainty what the exact statistics are. 
but a lot of people do struggle with these issues and they don't have the health they need so the prevalence really just goes up with time because they live their whole lives with these issues and they go undiagnosed and underreported so that's pretty much a big concern for anyone who's working in the medical field especially in psychiatry in particular Dr Khan thank you for your time and thank you for taking me through this paper You're very welcome it was a very nice experience thank you so much I think any source of mental health stigma is always a tragic thing really anything that serves as an obstacle for people to present the services and get the help they need or even from opening up to family and loved ones and getting help in that way anything that serves as an obstacle to that is always a terrible thing and especially in the case where the source of that stigma is the law because really laws surely exist to protect members of society and if laws are not fit for purpose then they change they are adapted social cultural attitudes and behaviors take time to change and are more not to suggest in any way that the law is a simple thing to change but i would argue that the task of changing the law is one that is perhaps more easily tackled than changing social attitudes and ideas which is something that can take multiple generations the suicide laws have changed in that it's now decriminalized mm. and you're right that clearly took some kind of process to get there which may have gone in counter to prevailing attitudes in Pakistan i don't know that either went by public opinion leading the change or the law changing may change public opinion right mm. there's a lot of changes sometimes that run contrary to public opinion so for example think of the introduction of civil partnerships in the uk because at the time that civil partnerships were introduced same sex relationships were not anywhere close to universally accepted and by the time gay marriage became legal it was closer to the case that people are more accepting of it so sometimes change in law precedes change in social cultural attitudes yeah. or rather they move at different rates but they can happen simultaneously yeah and then you think about the irish abortion referendum 2018 where the republic of ireland voted to overturn their abortion ban whereas previously abortion was only allowed when a woman's life was at risk and that took 66% of the voting public which you know if you consider also the non-voting block means that probably a majority of that country did not vote for it and that was a case where public opinion had to change in order for the abortion ban to be lifted because it was done by referendum and even then it was only done by 66% of the voting public mm. and really on the whole both the article by Dr Ramesh Kaiser Khan and Dr Abdul Moiz Khan both the article and the interview are really quite interesting and quite eye opening to the fact that the system is still changing suicide was decriminalized fairly recently 2018 yeah but there are still ways in which things could be better for mental health patients interacting with the legal system in Pakistan yeah i think just before that cuz you mentioned you know the suicide 
being decriminalized. And you also mentioned how the laws affect how people engage with clinical services. And can you imagine? And Dr. Khan did say that although decriminalization has happened, maybe not everyone is aware of it and maybe things haven't changed so much in practice. But can you imagine being a doctor, say, before the decriminalization in A&E, seeing someone who seemingly has had a suicide attempt, but just for fear of legal ramifications cannot say that that is what it was and for fear of social ramifications right like if it clinically seems to be that way and it almost becomes like an elephant in the room like you know what you're treating but you can't say what it is i wish i'd asked you know what that sort of clinical experience is like for a doctor like do they list it in their differentials or do they just treat as what happens Mm. right because of course, one must consider the patient's best interests. And if it would be against their best interests to formally document in the medical notes, say if a patient is reluctant to tell you that they've attempted suicide, but you've received this in a collateral history from a family member, if you do have this worry that the medical notes could be used against the patient in a court of law, that is quite a difficult conundrum and situation to be placed in. And then how do you ensure that someone who's come in with what is evidently a suicide attempt but no one is willing to say it gets the appropriate psychiatric help though surely in a country where it was illegal to attempt suicide i imagine services available for individuals who have attempted suicide just naturally by the nature of funding i mean how do you fund a service built around a problem that doesn't exist yeah a problem that is illegal I mean, it's not necessarily impossible, right? Because heroin use is illegal, but there are methadone clinics. It's not the exact same thing. Well, this is why I asked about whether it was actually prosecuted or not, because sometimes you can have these things where it's on the books, not legal, but everyone knows what the score is, which it seems like that was the case in Pakistan. But it also seems like people were still deterred from seeking help appropriately. Understandably so. If it was illegal here and you had done something which you feared ramifications for you might not go to the doctor Mm. and how can you appropriately make an intervention make a change if you don't know what the problem you face is if you don't know the specific sub demographics of suicide in your country gender age socioeconomic status how can you tailor a response to that on a national level right Dr. Khan said, even looking for the statistics used within her article, there wasn't much. And so clearly there is a call to increase data collection and reporting on these things. But there's a stigma hurdle to overcome with that. Mm. And even if the official record keeping does take place, well, would it be an underestimate, as you say, due to stigma? it's likely that it will be underreported. Yeah. A multi-pronged approach definitely required, as always, public education all over the world, including here. Very key, very important to change attitudes and make sure that these issues don't get swept under the carpet. So that was one aspect to suicide. 
And then the other aspect, and it is almost just one thing, which is being able to plead, well, we say plead insanity, but basically to be able to say that you had reduced capacity due to mental illness when you are a defendant in a civil or a criminal trial. And sometimes those trials being for blasphemy. So those two issues almost seem singular, which is that the court system, coupled with the prevailing country's attitude towards mental illness, just makes it very difficult to be a defendant with mental illness in the legal system. I don't know if it's applicable because, again, we don't have the stats specifically in Pakistan, but generally we do know that for many individuals who are mentally unwell, often they already face difficulties more often than not being from a lower socioeconomic background and already having experienced adverse life events. Things are already difficult for them as it is. Yeah, exactly. And so, again... That whole concept of you better be able to afford a good lawyer. Right? Mm. The cards are kind of stacked against you if you're not got someone willing to go to bat for you. And as we've, from the Amnesty International report, noted that even in cases where it's absolutely clear that the defendant has a mental illness, there may not be a doctor willing to go to bat for them, particularly in blasphemy cases. Well, that's awfully depressing. Well, the article mentions this as two separate issues about being a defendant in general and not being able to plead diminished capacity because of mental illness, and then specifically the case of blasphemy laws. And there is an issue specifically with blasphemy laws, which Amnesty International report brings up, which is that there is the possibility that blasphemy accusations can be inspired by ulterior motives. So, the Imran Ghafur Masir case study. Masir was accused and sentenced to life in prison under section 295B of the blasphemy laws after his neighbour manipulated and tricked him into unknowingly throwing away a copy of the Quran because the neighbour wanted to gain Masir's storefront real estate. Right, so there's an example of how people can be manipulated and then if you think about the most vulnerable people to being manipulated or falsely accused, it would be people such as people with mental illness, right? Also specifically individuals with neurocognitive or developmental disorders. Yeah. So I definitely see how that's a unique scenario, especially when there's like vague acts which can break that law, such as, quote, deliberate or malicious acts intended to outrage religious feelings of any class by insulting its religion or religious beliefs. Like, what would you literally have to do to break that law? It's not very well defined and probably quite difficult to prove that you didn't do it. So (laughs) it seems like something that vulnerable people could be very susceptible to being exploited by. Hmm. So it's very useful that Dr. Khan provided some suggestions regarding potential next steps in order to reduce stigmatization of mental illness in Pakistani society. And one such recommendation is that in sensitive matters such as blasphemy cases, all mentally unwell defendants should be reviewed by an independent psychiatric board in order to establish competency to stand trial. 
and it's also recommended that law enforcement agencies should receive sensitivity training to tackle such cases in the field. Well, I tell you what, in terms of blasphemy cases, doesn't it sound like not only should that be the case, there should be some form of security provided towards everyone involved, to be honest, the defendant and to the clinicians involved. Mm. It just sounds like, as Dr. Khan said, by the time these things hit trial, the public may have already taken justice into their own hands. Like, this is basically a very culturally sensitive issue. Mm. And so clearly, as we've seen, doctors may not be very secure in providing their expert testimony. And clearly there needs to be some support structure for being able to do that. Mm. Perhaps such matters would be addressed through one of the other recommendations, which is that special courts should be specifically set up for trial of those who are mentally unwell, and that capital punishment in particular should be excused for those who are proven to be mentally ill. Well, that's a human right anyway. Mm. I absolutely agree with that. To the extent that I personally don't agree with capital punishment in the first place, certainly I don't think anyone would agree with capital punishment for people with mental illness. I don't think there is a way to end this on a happy note, <laughs> but... Um... Well, the way the article has been ended is that public awareness is essential. And both authors have written that we have to strive for a culture in which suicide attracts more compassion than infamy for the person and where the suffering of people battling mental illness is not invalidated at the level of the masses and the institutions. And frankly, I think that's a statement that strikes true globally. Absolutely. Isn't that always the case that <laughs> we read these articles and we just see them as lenses for things that need to happen everywhere, including here? Mm. You can find the article titled Crime and Punishment, Pakistan's Legal Failure. Man, what a strong title, by the way. Legal Failure to Account for Mental Illness in the BJ Psych International. I've been Sachin Shah. And I've been... I mean, if you're saying your full name, I feel like I should say my full name. Okay, I've been Sachin. And I've been Hammy. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.